A city like Minneapolis that shows up time and again on all these livability indexes as one of the best cities in the country to live in shows up simultaneously on these lists of one of the worst places to live if you are a Black person. Her grandmother used to take her and her siblings to the movie theaters, and the grandmother would tell the kids, do not put your head on the back of the seat, because that's where Black people's heads are. Black in the Middle was released earlier this month. In the words of its subtitle, it is an anthology of the Black Midwest. Its essays, photographs, and art detail the experience of being a Black person living in Cleveland, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Ypsilanti, Peoria, even St. Louis. It tells the story of Black lives in the Midwest, past, present, and future. And more than anything, it reminds outsiders that the Midwest is not just cornfields and white people. Stop pretending Black Midwesterners don't exist, Tamara Winfrey Harris urges in one of the book's most urgent essays. And in the diversity of experiences that Black in the Middle captured, it makes clear that these Black Midwesterners are not all in Chicago, either. It's an important read, and it's also a good one. And joining us today to talk about it is its editor, that's Terrian L. Williamson. She's also an associate professor and director of undergraduate studies, African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. So, Terrian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. So this book comes out of the Black Midwest Initiative, which you launched in 2017. What was the idea behind that? The idea of the initiative was to speak to what we saw as a void in coverage of black Midwesterners in a really um, robust way. The idea for the initiative um, for me had been, had been, I'd been thinking about it for some time. Um, in my first book that came out at the end of 2016, Scandalize My Name, I write about my hometown of Peoria, Illinois. Um, and from the time when I had been doing the work for that book, I had been thinking about this idea of regionalism and the sort of dearth of attention to black Midwesterners, um, both in academic literature as well as in sort of wider the wider public. And so in 2017, as we were coming off of the 2016 presidential election and the various ways in which middle America was being conceptualized, it mm-hmm. seemed like the time was really right for us to... Um, begin doing the work around forming the Black Midwest Initiative. And so we serve as a platform for various artists, um, writers, scholars who are doing work on the Black Midwest to sort of make visible the kinds of work that people are doing, but also trying to work collectively as advocates um, of the various places that we represent, the various communities that we're concerned about, um, and thinking deeper um, and, and, more, and in more connected ways about how to improve the conditions of life for black folks in the Midwest. Hmm. So this isn't just saying we exist. This is also saying here are some of the problems we're grappling with. Oh, absolutely, because um, it, it's certainly about more than just mere visibility. Visibility is important. It's an important first step to action. But many of us have already been doing work in our communities. We've been writing about um, these various places, but the Black Midwest Initiative is meant to help pr- provide some support 
for the various work people are doing, and then people and then to put people in conversation, um, particularly artists with scholars and scholars with community organizers, et cetera, um, because there's much work to be done and there's much work that's already going on. And so part of what we do is connect people up with each other and to try to do that work more collectively. And this book seems like such a great example of this. There's there's mm-hmm. some things in here where there's pieces that are that are simply art, but then there's also pieces of journalism. There's things that mm-hmm. are very probing. How do you see that fitting into your vision for this initiative? I, so the book comes out of, it's an extension of the symposium we held in 2019 on the campus of the University of Minnesota. Um, and that symposium was organized as a series of keyword panels. Um, we also had film screenings, and the event began with a poetry reading of five different poets from throughout the region. Mm-hmm. And so the panels were organized in such a way, so home, for instance, was one of our keywords. And the idea was, instead of the sort of traditional academic conference, which in my field is, you know, Everyone has a paper whose title probably has 15 words, and then they, they spend 10 minutes reading that paper to the audience. That's sort of traditionally what happens in my field. But instead of doing that, especially because so many people were not traditional academics, it was, you know, the word is home. How does a visual artist, a historian, a community organizer, and a filmmaker, how do they all take up that word differently across the work that they're doing, and how might we talk about that collectively as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think the book is meant to pick up from where the the symposium left off, and it's also organized around keywords, and it's meant to do a very similar kind of work. And you have some voices in this book. You have so many diverse voices in this book. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all black, I believe, and they're all Midwesterners or were Midwesterners. Um, but their stories really run the gamut of, of different experiences, different things they're thinking about. Where did you find all these contributors? Well, I will say they are almost all black. I think at least two of the contributors are not black but have been doing work in black communities that I thought was also relevant to be included in the collection. Mm -hmm. And so many of the contributors are people who were involved in the symposium. Um, And so we put out a call during the symposium, and that's how we got a number of people. But then we also just put out a general call. The press that we went with, Belt Belt Publishing, has um, a really wonderful press that does exclusively publishes um, work that's about the the Midwest and the Rust Belt, and they have established a really robust network, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why we went with Belt. And so they also put out the call, and so people submitted – just submitted the work that they had, and we were able to pull it together that way. We should mention to our listeners, we've featured uh, Vivian Gibson's recent memoir Mm -hmm. on this show, um, and what a wonderful book. And that was Mm -hmm. published by Belt Publishing. They're based in Cleveland. They really seem to do a great job of of elevating some of these voices that some of the bigger publishing houses don't always pay attention to. Um, And we're actually joined today, our second guest on today's show, in addition to Terry and Williamson, who edited this this wonderful book. Um, Our second guest is one of the contributors who answered that call. She was not part of the symposium, um, but heard about this uh, through Twitter. And that is Lindsay Ellis. She's a St. Louis native who lives in Florissant. And her piece, Hair, uh, details a troubling experience she had at the University of Missouri-Columbia. She actually has a novel that's coming out next year. And she joins us today. So, Lindsay Ellis, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And Tarion, it's nice to finally hear your voice. I feel like Absolutely. we've communicated a lot <laughs> online, but never like this. Right. <laughs> I'm glad I can officially put you two onto the same phone line here. This is exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about your experience. I know you grew up here and you left Missouri yes. for Oakland where you got your MFA. When you were out there on the West Coast, did they have any sense of, of where you were from when you tried to explain it? That's a that's a great question. Yeah, I did. I was born and raised in St. Louis, specifically Florissant, uh, St. Louis, North St. Louis County. Um, and yeah, I did go out uh, to grad school at uh, California College of the Arts in San Francisco, lived in Oakland for, oh gosh, it was about 12 years hmm. and uh, returned in 2018. Um, and I will say when I was out there, it's, I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, uh, it's kind of like uh, what you guys had mentioned before. Some people just uh, think that the Midwest is basically synonymous with uh, corn stalks and just, you know, in fields and that there's no real cities here and there's no people of color here, no black people, nothing, nothing like that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a real big misconception, I would say. We heard from one of our listeners when we said we were talking to the two of you today, and she had an interesting point. Uh, Robin wrote on Twitter, the question really is why do they overlook us in the Midwest and why do they overlook coverage of us in the media? They overlook us in the suburbs, living middle class and or blue collar lives. They miss out on generational stories of families who settled here during the Great Migration. Newsrooms are too white. Terrian, do you think that's a major factor here? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's funny because I also went to grad school in California, though I was in Southern California at USC um, and experienced something very similar to what Lindsay is mm. talking about. And I think, you know, a lot of media is based on the coast. Um, and so we don't get the coverage. And to the extent that you get the coverage of black folks in the Midwest, it's often centered around the bigger cities. Um, so particularly Chicago and Detroit and then even when it's centered around the bigger cities, it's around stories of, like, of criminality and violence. So even cities which appear like Chicago and Detroit in national narratives, um, they appear in order to talk about crime mm -hmm. or in order to talk about like, black pathology in, in, those, um, in those cities. So I absolutely think that that's something that this, this book and the work that I'm doing, and I think that Lindsay is doing, is meant to like mitigate against that very thing. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, and, and I certainly have noticed people pay more attention to the Midwest when there's a flashpoint here. But I feel like people sometimes in the Midwest are able to use that to say, oh, no, it, it's it's more subtle than you think, or it's, it's, it's more complex than you think. Lindsay, you would have been out there in California when Michael Brown was shot by a Ferguson police officer. At that point, did you find people being more interested in, in hearing about your experience growing up in North County, St. Louis? Oh, of course, definitely. Um, at the time, I had been working on a novel that's actually coming out uh, next year that you've mentioned. And uh, before that even happened, uh, there was very little interest or just, you know, just kind of sat there for a while. And then after this happened, people who knew, you know, in the circles that I was in, people who knew that I was originally from the Midwest, specifically St. Louis, you know, everybody comes to me and they're just like, oh, yeah, so what about, you know, Ferguson and what about St. Louis? And I'm just like, OK, you know, I'm glad that it's getting attention and a national attention that I felt it deserved at the time for this atrocious crime. Uh, but at the same time, it's just like, OK, it takes something like this to actually uh, be seen.
Hmm. Terry, and have you seen the same thing with the more recent killing of, of George Floyd up where you're at in, in Minnesota, that people are suddenly um, all over the Black Midwest Initiative? Right. Because, <laughs> you know, the the book came out at a moment when, you know, we never could have expected what what would have preceded the book coming out um, and the conversations that people were suddenly interested in, in having, having as a consequence of the death of George Floyd, and all the more because the Black Midwest Initiative and I are based in Minneapolis. And so absolutely we're now having more robust conversations, including in the city itself, around um, the community of African-descendant people in the city have become much more robust. And so part of the impetus now is how do we keep those conversations going in a meaningful way that lasts beyond the most immediate, um, the most immediate flashpoint and can actually make a difference um, before there's another Kenosha or before there's another Rochester or before there's another um, or before the death of another person like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Terry, in hearing you list all these incidents one after another, it does speak to just how many times um, African-Americans are killed at the hands of police, which is such a huge issue. But it's interesting to think of how many of these have been in Midwestern towns or mm-hmm. in Rust Belt towns. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a coincidence? Oh, definitely not. You know, one of the things that um, I say in the conclusion of the book, which I was able to sort of get in there right before the book went to press, was that, you know, as as upset as we are, as angry as we are, as hurt and devastated as we are, I think many or most of us who come from the Midwest are not particularly surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there have been recent studies that have noted that some of the highest levels, the highest levels of racial segregation, the highest sort of disparities between black and white, black and white residents are occurring within the industrial cities of the Midwest. A city like Minneapolis that shows up time and again on all these livability indexes is one of the best cities in the country to live in, shows up simultaneously on these lists of one of the worst places to live if you are a black person as a consequence of those disparities. And so we see this over and over again, and we see the kinds of um, things that black folks in our communities are up against and the way that we feel this, that we see it personally and we feel this in our everyday existence. It's no surprise that these kinds of uprisings and rebellions are happening in our communities. I think of my own hometown as being one incident away from also having its own rebellion just because of long-standing historical strife and trauma that exists in the communities. And so that's why I say, you know, what happened in Minneapolis needs to be um, forewarning so that we can do more work so that we can head off what is potentially to come. Mm-hmm. We're talking today to Tarian L. Williamson. Um, she is a professor at the University of Minnesota and the editor of Black in the Middle, an anthology of the Black Midwest, which is just out now from Belt Publishing. And we're also joined today by one of the contributors featured in that anthology. That's Lindsay Ellis, who's a fluorescent-based writer. She has a novel, Bone Broth, that's coming out next year, in addition to her wonderful piece in this. And Tarian, I'm glad you mentioned Peoria, because as I was hearing you talk about these livability indexes, and yet also so, you know, 
know, the dichotomy of them being hard places for black people to live. It made me think about your essay in this book, which is such a great essay. You talk about Peoria and you you base this essay kind of on its relationship with Richard Pryor, who's its, its famous native son. Tell us a little bit about some of the themes you're exploring in this essay. Well, the the essay came about, so I mentioned that my first book came out um, at, toward the end of 2016. And so I wrote the essay as um, sort of an extension of the book. It also came out right in the sort of wake of the presidential election. And part of what I'm speaking to in that essay is um, the kind of rhetoric that was was happening over and over again and was often mobilized around the city of Chicago, which went, black people, you might as well vote for me because what else, you know, what else are you going to do? Hmm. Um, what else do you have to lose, right? And and the suggestion that what it is to live in communities like the south side of Chicago, where I lived when I was in undergrad, or places like Peoria, is, is the equivalent of living in hell. And so part of what I'm doing in that essay is to suggest that you know, knowing, um, having firsthand experience with what it is to grow up in an under-resourced community that, yes, there are absolutely conditions against which we are pushing back, but that doesn't mean that there's no joy or care or affection there. And the reason that that rotates around the figure of Richard Pryor is because growing up, you know, when I left Peoria, the one way that people could often place me was by way of Richard Pryor. Oh, that's the place where Pryor came from. (laughs) And so... And I think Richard Pryor is really interesting. He has a really, really interesting history with Peoria, which never really wanted to recognize Richard Pryor, because Richard Pryor totally mitigates the idea that Peoria has of itself as this sort of model American city. And Richard Pryor is, is nothing if not, you know, is not a model American citizen in the way that Peoria might have liked to present itself. And Peoria and, and Pryor talked much smack about Peoria, let's be very clear, which is part of the reason people know anything about it. But he also, he never held himself apart from the city. Hmm. Um, and so he talked about the city, he critiqued the city in a way that someone from the city can critique, in a way that both has care and affection for the place, but also recognizes its shortfalls and its shortcomings, and, and said that in a really, and, and made those critiques in a really powerful kind of way, I think. Yeah, and, and your essay is just terrific. I'd recommend anybody read this who who's curious about Peoria or the legacy of Richard Pryor or any of these themes. There's just so much to, to think about in this essay. And, and Lindsay, one of the other essays that really struck me in this book, even before I realized that you were a St. Louisan, was your essay. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about, about this piece? Yeah, so it's a piece um, that I wrote when I was reflecting on my time at uh, Mizzou. Uh, in Columbia, Missouri, and um, it has a lot to do with hair, hence Mm -hmm. the title hair, and just my love and hate relationship with hair, uh, specifically natural hair, um, all stemming from an incident um, in uh, my first black lit class or black literature class um, that me and my best friend took at the time. And one of the questions was from our uh, professor one day, he basically asked us to tell a story and say like what actually what experiences might have shaped the way we thought or give like some kind of misconception Mm -hmm. uh, or you know give life to some type of misconception that we had in terms of race and culture and one of the girls actually raised her hand and she said you know nobody was expecting it she kind of just said well um, when she was a, a little girl 
her grandmother used to take her and her siblings to the movie theaters and she, the grandmother would tell the kids, do not put your head on the back of, of the seat because that's where black people's heads are and you don't want cooties. That mm-hmm. was basically what she was saying. And it just took everybody by surprise. Like first, first off for her to just admit something like that. Mm-hmm. And then just to see like everybody's reactions and her reactions and, you know, it's just a whole bunch of feelings at that time. And it, it really had a big impact on me. And I'm sure it did for, you know, the rest of the students there. And it just made me think like something like this, something that you would think is trivial as hair, just the way we wear our hair is the subject of repulsion for a lot of people. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where it came from. It was a real healing moment, though, I will say, um, I think for everybody in that situation, just to get that out in the open. Hmm. So you think it was good that she shared it, even though it was so painful for you to hear that? I do. I do. And I will say this sounds funny, but it's because you you finally see you're able to sit with people from different walks of life. And, you know, you see how people were raised and it it really just justify or it just it confirms the fact that racism is taught, right? Mm -hmm. Like this was not something that she just came with up on her own. Like this was passed down from generations to generations to and still being passed down if we want to be, you know, we want to be very uh, clear about it. And I mean, that's, that's just something that really just stuck with me. And it's something that, yeah, I just decided to write about. And when I heard of this, of this anthology, the call for it. I was just like, oh man, I got to I got to, you know, put this in. I want this out there. Well, so, yeah, that's kind of where it came from. It's a great essay and it, it made me so it, it just really made me sad. It's been a lingering sadness to think about that essay and that that's a sign of a good essay. So, there are so <laughs> many good things in this book. I want to recommend people get Black in the Middle, an anthology of the Black Midwest. It's out from Belt Publishing. We have a link to that on our website so you can you don't have to buy it through Amazon, although it's also available on Amazon if people want to do that and I want to thank both of my guests for being here today and, and talking to us about their experiences and also their work on this book. So, um, Lindsay Ellis, um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. And Terrian Williamson of the Black Midwest Initiative and also the editor of this wonderful book, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.